Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, a worker's guide to everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenigisoltas. Hello and welcome once again to another Trademark Podcast. I'm joined here today in the office in our little podcast studio by old friend of ours, Connor McCabe. Connor, you're very welcome. Cheers, uh, Stevie. Um, Connor's back again to talk about some of the work he's uh, been getting up to recently. Um, he's going to fill us in on two projects. Really well, we're going to focus on one project. And the first project is an anthology of Irish Marxist writing that Connor's been working on. We did a podcast on it back in September. This is a kind of a follow-up to that podcast. Um, and we're going to talk about kind of the 20th century, I suppose, in terms of you know tr- what, what that anthology of Irish Marxist writers tells us about what was happening in the 20th century. We've missed out the revolutionary period, but we're going to go back to that. Last time we sat and talked to each other, we spoke about kind of late 18th century, 19th century Marxism in Ireland. Really interesting kind of segue into into Chartism and Irish Marxist writers and their involvement with Irish Chartism, but also English or British Chartism. But today we're looking at the 1920s, 30s, 40s, which is in in itself a fascinating period. And maybe at the end we might give a little nod to the next podcast we're going to do with Connor, where we go back to part two of talking to Connor about his collected works of James Connolly, which he's been working on furiously. Now, the first thing we want to talk about, Connor's given me a couple of pieces of text and articles in the 20s and 30s, which highlight perfectly the kind of the traditions of Irish Marxism in the 30s. And the first one is fascinating, and it's an editorial from Anne Foblacht um, from Saturday, 7th of May, 1932. And like the rest of the articles we're going to look at, it's quite prescient. I'll just re- I'll just read the first couple of lines, if I can, Connor, if you don't mind. Yep. Um, it starts off one introduction, and this is Anne Foblacht, remember. There is an appalling lack of political and economic thought and teaching in this country. I mean... <laughs> That's been my line for the last 15 years working in the Irish labour movement. It goes on, probably in no other country have there been, it's been so um, badly neglected. The result is that the people are completely at the mercy of those whose interest it is to maintain the existing imperialist and capitalist order, political and economic, which dominates and controls their lives, their well-being and very existence. I mean, it's could and sounds very Marxist. It could and sounds very communist. It could come out of a communist party in the Soviet Union now. But that's Anne Foblacht, uh, 1932, Connor. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a very interesting series of articles. There's around eight of them, and they all kind of uh, form a, a pretty good kind of booklet in and of themselves. But what's interesting about it is that yes, it's on Foblacht and it's it's quite Marxist and. In the 1930s, um, even though there was a Marxist kind of newspaper, Irish Workers' Voice, some of the sharpest kind of Marxist you know, writings were happening in on Fulvlocht. Uh, part of that is down to Padder O'Donnell, of course, you know, mm-hmm. you know, who was who was editor uh, for a while. But it was also that, you know, like these are the times that people work and living in, you know, the great crash has happened. So there's a world there's a world recession that's going on. We are 15 years into the Russian into the Russian Revolution project yeah. itself and it's seen that but capitalism has failed. Uh, what's interesting about these uh, this article in you know, Fulvlock is that it's putting forward it's a Marxist kind of analysis but it's also placing Ireland completely within a world capitalist system. Yeah. Which is even for Irish historians mainstream historians is quite rare you get so much exceptionalism in ireland as if kind of capitalism just doesn't exist here and ireland is the exception these articles make it very very clear that is not the case what draws me to them is that um 
it shows a kind of a complexity and a richness of analysis of actually existing capitalism in Ireland at the time. And what you get is something that I write about, which is this this kind of middleman combador kind of system. So they talk about uh, like how Ireland, how the South, how the free state is now it's in existence, but it is still part of the imperial core. Yeah, there's. I mean, it's the, the, the article here, and I'll put them up on the on our website or on our Twitter or whatever social media, so people can have a look at them. But it, they refer back to Connolly and Mitchell and Layler, and you see that them connecting, you know, connecting that mm. tradition of Irish Marxist writings right there, right back to the late nineteenth century, and and their understanding of imperialism. You know, uh, quote: They showed clearly that imperialism is essentially economic. And that political rule and political oppression are the outward expression of the control to safeguard and retain these economic interests. I mean, that's just fucking on point, it's even complete, for twenty twenty three, isn't it's, it? It's it's completely on point. And you know, like in the you know in the article where they name check kind of John Mitchell and Lawler and James Connolly and like Liam Mellows, they say that each of these had a keen understanding of the root basis and power of British imperialism and its allies mm. in Ireland, whether natives or planters. Which goes back to your the issue of the Comprador class and the fact that the Comprador class was well understood in the 20s and Completely 30s. Completely understood. But it's it, been forgotten about almost since. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a companion piece from 1937. It's in kind of Labour News and it's called Compatriot Comprador. And what it is is that it's a, it's a segment from a book that was written by Oscar Erdberg, that was the pseudonym of Oscar Takanov, and he was a member of the. He he worked for the Comintern in China. So they have this this extract from his book on China, and, and what he says is that is that um, he talks about this kind of compador kind of class, mm. and in the article, in the introduction, the editor say that we also have this compador class here. So what you see is there was a great interest in China and what was happening in China during that period. On Fulflock is is printing articles from Chinese Marxist writers in the nineteen in, in the nineteen twenties and you know and the nineteen thirties. And what they're seeing is that they're not getting this idea of a competitor class from China. What they're seeing is that we have this kind of middleman class here that is tied with imperialism and we can recognize mm-hmm. this in China. So what we see is that it, it's not that they're getting this idea from China. They are recognizing the, their, their own kind of analysis in the Chinese kind of reality yeah. at that time. What happens is that from the 1940s onwards, the, it, it, this analysis kind of drops off and it comes back into Irish kind of Marxism in, in the 1970s. Uh, but when it does, it comes via South America. So you get this hybrid kind of view of kind of competitorism that's taken from the Latin American kind of experience rather than from what actually happened here. Yeah, I think we'll and have that to, history is lost. I think we'll have to go back and look at that again because I know that we refer to comparable capitalism in our political education training and education all the time, but I think it's worth a little podcast to delve into that in a, in a, in a lot more depth, you know, because it's fascinating. To it me is, to, and and just one uh, just one more kind of example of like how how sharpened this was. On, uh, like on the 18th of June, this is like, it's one month later, every week they had kind of printed, you know, articles mm-hmm. from this kind of series. And they talk about banks and they talk about functions of Irish banks. And uh, what they say is that in most countries, the larger functions of the banks are the finance industry, trade and social development, such as housing and so forth. In Ireland, 
the main purpose of the banks is to collect all the money in the country and to invest it abroad, i.e. in Britain. Now, I write about this in my two books anyway, about, about kind of how banking was part of that kind of Compador class because it's, it's taking the savings and wealth mm-hmm. out of the state and it's been invested in Britain. So this money has been used for capital investment, but it's been used in the imperial core, not, not in Ireland itself. That's the reason why Ireland doesn't have huge, huge kind of industry being built up in the 1930s and 40s. The, the capital isn't there. It's in Britain. It's been used for that purpose. But that analysis also reinforces the idea that Ireland is part of the periphery of empire and not part of the imperialist core. I mean, it, it, because it's literally geographically close to Britain, people yeah. assume, well, it's part of the imperialist core. But in the 1920s and 30s, it wasn't. And I'd argue it still isn't, because if you no. think of the money, that's, the wealth, sorry, that's been extracted from Ireland, particularly through landlordism and the ownership of property here, that money's been extracted from this state and it's going somewhere else. It's going into, as you said, being parked in other investments or, or put somewhere else in the imperialist core. Exactly. We, we still serve, if you like, the periphery of empire. Yes, we do. And and what's interesting about kind of that article or that kind of analysis that in the 1930s, Irish Marxists had come to a view of banking that was different to the view of banking that Marxists in Manchester would Mm. have. So what you have here is that they have analysed the actually existing relations of production on the island and have come to a conclusion as to the class relations that have kind of been kind of built out of that. You're not going to get that. If you have a British kind of Marxism and then just apply that to Ireland, you will miss this. This will fall mm. through the cracks of your analysis. And that is pretty much kind of what happens to kind of Irish kind of Marxism, Irish kind of leftist kind of thinking. In terms of what, in that one paragraph where they talk about how Irish capital has been used for investment in Britain, you will not find, even though that is overwhelmingly true, all the evidence kind of shows that, the incredible kind of statements from that, you will not get that insight from any of the mainstream historical uh, books on Ireland. It's not in Foster. It's not in Lee. It's not in uh, Farrater. It's not there. They don't analyze banking, which is insane. Mm. When you have one of the, like Mary Meller, who, you know, who spoke at kind of trademark, you know, kind of over the years, she calls a money a tool of empire. Yeah. That's what it is. And we can see this here. Irish Marxism had come to its own kind of conclusion of this and because there was a specifically Irish way that it was being used. And they had analysed it there and then. That gets lost in the 1960s, 1970s onwards. No, it's fascinating. Back to the quote again, from the, the, just from the article, you know, the imperialism is essentially economic. And one of the main vehicles of that economic imperialism is, of course, the banking sector and finance and finance, the rest of it. Yeah. I remember meeting you about 10 years ago, 12 years ago now, when we worked in Mandate, um, the trade union in the, in the free state. And you told me, go back and read some of the stuff from the 1920s and 30s. Go back and read Worker's Voice. Go back and read Anne Fobluckter because you'll find in there working people, organic intellectuals, to use Gramsci's term, with a better analysis of capitalism and imperialism than we'll find in academic circles in, 20, in, no, in, in, in the 21st century. Well, you know, and it's so true when you read this stuff. It's fascinating. On that line, is that, like, what I find so fascinating about kind of Irish kind of Marxism is that it is a work-class intellectual mm. activity. Because of the power of the church in third level, you don't have Marx, you don't really have that kind of Marxist kind of a tradition in the Irish, um, in Southern Irish, toward level, a university kind of sector. Or the labour movement for that matter. Or the labour movement because also the, the church trained mm-hmm. the, the activists. Uh, the first 
Labour College that is set up in 1947 or 44. So it's set up by the Jesuits to train trade unionists as how to become trade unionists. That's now the National College of Ireland that's in the uh, Deacon of Docklands. So, so, so they had taken that over. Where you get it is on the street. So that's where kind of like, that's why I find kind of Irish Marxism so fascinating because unlike in Marxism in other parts of, of Europe, you don't have that third level intellectual strain. You do now. I mean, it's mm -hmm. in kind of, you know, yeah. like, you know, there's people in like Maynooth in like geography and so forth forever who are, who are Marxists and have produced some really interesting Marxist, you know, kind of analysis of data centers of kind of geography. Yeah. But in terms of up to the last kind of, up to about, kind of, you know, 20 years ago, it was overwhelmingly a working class intellectual tradition but the problem is we've lost that tradition we have we have that's indeed the thing, isn't and it? i'll go back to that problem. another quote there's an appalling lack of political and economic thought and teaching in this country and particularly amongst the organized working class and we've spoken about it before and i'm not going to end it today but the Irish labor movement has a has a has a step up to the mark there in it's terms true of, and we used to do it so well yeah you know what i mean yeah. like a working class people analyzing irish kind of capitalism in a from an indigenous irish marxist a perspective and knocking it out of the park yeah, fascinating. Right, we're going to move on there now. Um, in terms of looking at another example of that nuanced and, and complex and sophisticated analysis of Irish capitalism and its role in, in, in imperialism as part of the periphery of, of empire, and it's by a writer that I had never heard of before, even though I've been in the communist movement in Ireland for over 20 years, and, and there's a writer that wrote for the Workers' Voice, which was, uh, you know, which was the publication in the 1930s. And his name was Brian O'Neill. So tell me a little bit, of, firstly, about the geezer, about Brian O'Neill and how you kind of kind of rediscovered him almost because he kind of I've never heard of him and I've read an awful lot over the years Connor but I never came across Brian O'Neill yeah you know he was born in the states in Pennsylvania around 1904 um, he ends up in Ireland in the south uh, around 1931 or so um, he was arrested in like he was a member of the British of the British communist movement in the 19 late 1920s he was arrested and he um he he got kind of six months for conspiracy for sedition, and um, shortly afterwards he he ends up in in Dublin, joins the IRA. Um, it seems that he was working for the Comintern, although I'm still trying to get that kind of uh, you know kind of worked out, and um, he starts then writing from kind of all these things. He was heavily influenced by Padder O'Donnell. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book called The War for the Land in Ireland and it's an O'Donnell-esque tract, you know. You, you can really see kind of Padder O'Donnell's kind of influence in it. It seems, um, my feeling is that, and this is, this is pure kind of speculation on my part, but I get the feeling that he was, he was sent over via the British kind of communist uh, you know, movement that was seen as a kind of, that was given this kind of a benevolent, a patriarchal role mm -hmm. by the commentator for Ireland, that that would be a kind of farther figure. We, we see that quite a lot in <laughs> on the left. But yeah, you know, that, you know, <laughs> that we look after you, yeah. uh, you know, these kind of thick old kind of paddies. <laughs> and, um, and I think he, he went native. Oh, he rebelled against that. I okay, think yeah. he, like, he goes full native. and he, more, more Irish than the Irish. Like exactly. A Norman, like a Norman in the 13th century. Yeah, but he gets it. Like, it just, like, this kind of, what I call kind of compadre now, but this kind of middleman gone being kind of, you know, their kind of class kind of, you know, dynamic in Irish kind of capitalism, he gets it. He, he gets it mm -hmm. via Padder O'Donnell, but he's not being prescriptive he gets these kind of ideas and he runs with them himself it's a very good writer very funny 
very sharp. And this article here, which is the Irish Labour Party and fascism, that's from 1935 or so is hilarious. I, it, I have to say, and I want to first read it when you sent it to me, it, it, it's, I mean, the writing itself is just so good and yeah. it's just so funny and it's really engaging. I mean, mm. I'll, I'll give you a quote from the, the opening of it. It says, uh, the Irish Labour Party is European social democracy's lucis naturae, which is the Latin for freak of nature, the jabberwock of the second international's collections of strange beasts. He goes on, the Irish Labour reformists are shameless in their reformism. There is no pretense that reform, reformism is a constitutional means to socialism. Reformism is admitted to be the end itself. And I mean, when I read that, and I've been arguing that for about 10 or 15 years about modern social democracy, that there was a point in time when, if you called yourself a social democrat, it meant a kind of parliamentary road to socialism. I know that's a long time ago. And now, really, if you call yourself a social democrat, it's accepting that neoliberal capitalism is the only model and there is no alternative. But to read it from Brian O'Neill in the 1930s, it's so prescient. It means so much even today. And I'll, again, I'll put this up on, on our website or on our social media so people can read it. It's really a worthwhile read. Um, and, it's, and, of course, the analysis, again, is brilliant, Connor, all the way through. It is, it is. And also, like, what's happening is that he's writing in the 1930s and he's writing about what the trade union movement at its leadership level mm. was actually like. And, where, like, what you get today is the banners and James Connolly and Larkin with the arms kind of outstretched. They were not the ones who set the the kind of terms of reference for the Irish, you know, you know, you know, for the Irish country union movement. It was people like Tom Johnson and William O'Brien. We, well, I we put up a plaque to Connolly on his house. That's that's one of the few houses in Dublin that is still kind of standing that he lived in back in August. And uh, I remember, yeah, I saw it, yeah. And uh, and like it's, it's you know the historian for kind of Dublin City Council said, how come no one ever argues for a plaque for kind of William O'Brien, you know? <laughs> and I said because they're embarrassed by him because he is actually that kind of corporatist, neo-fascist, Catholic corporatist mm. mentality, Catholic social teaching as the as the dominant kind of narrative. That's what Brian Neal is talking about here, Reverend. Yeah. It is it is trade union fascism that has given a kind of Catholic kind of sheen. And that dominates uh, the Irish trade union movement in how it thinks. It, 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 it ties into that kind of corporatist kind of view that is central to the kind of ideology of the movement, not individual people or even kind of individual kind of trade unions, but as a movement, how it thinks. This is where it asks. I mean, you know, he's, like he says here that, that kind of Labour Party leaders are the journeymen of capitalist Im imperialism in <laughs> Ireland. Well, why... Like the, it's the fact that he's still calling a capitalist imperialism, mm -hmm. even though it's a free state, because he's looking at how money works, how cattle works. Mm -hmm. Like Brian Neal in Warfordland in, in Ireland gives a capitalist kind of a Marx kind of analysis of the cattle trade in Ireland and sees that kind of middleman Commodore kind of class in it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, it's it's a fascinating um article that one by Brian O'Neill, and it's. As I said before, the point of it is it's still relevant. It's still relevant today. That's the thing. I mean, we're in a position now in the night in the in the 2023 where we're finding social democratic and trade union forces again supporting the status quo, supporting imperialism, supporting the capitalist system which is failing and and in decline. Um, and meanwhile, we're seeing the the right on the rise. It's you know, it's a, I know it's a different context, but it, there are a lot of similarities. I remember I read a report last week that. Whenever left wing, they did, someone did a study of 200 elections in the European Union, just to bring this up to date, if you like, the Brian O'Neill analysis, mm. whenever left wing or social democratic parties implement austerity, it does two things at the next election that follows. One, it leads to a massive drop in voter turnout, and two, those that do turn out vote for far right parties. Yes. I mean, it's like contributing directly to the growth of the right by supporting 
and defending the status quo. And of course, that's what the labor movement was doing here in the 1930s, wasn't it? Absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, you know, again, and we're doing it again. Um, yeah. And and again, you know, there's, you know, there's always kind of that tension that's there, that's there between the the institutional expression of the trade union movement and then the trade union membership, mm -hmm. you know. But like, having said that, how it, it was kind of set up, like one of the reasons why I'm I'm really kind of really kind of pushing this idea of a Marxist anthology of like Irish writings or or, or an anthology of Irish and Marxist writings is that. Like I was trying to think forever, there is no book at the moment that gives you a history of the left in Ireland. Mm. We have a history of the Labour Party, a history of the of the trade union movement, but we don't have a history of the actual mm -hmm. left, how it thinks in Ireland. And I think what we miss there is that we have this tradition of Marxists in Ireland analysing these tensions and these very particular class relations and our institutional expressions. And we could draw from this because one of the reasons why Marxists fall back on history all, all the time is that history, it's its not one damn thing after another. History, it's a canvas that allows us to see deep social class relations in motion. Yeah. So, like, for me, if like, it goes back to, you know, that apocryphal story of the Chinese general what do you think of the French Revolution? He goes, <laughs> I'll tell you when it's over. Yeah, exactly. You yeah, know, yeah. that like, um, that <laughs> we can see this here is that like what we're dealing with here is that we are still in this kind of compador, middleman kind of capitalist kind of uh, system in Ireland. It has mutated. It's changed into, I have, you know, into finance more now than cattle. But its its ideology is still there and it's still imbued in the state itself. So its defense mechanisms are still the, the like same. And that's part of what we can see here in terms of what kind of Brian Neal is like writing about. Yeah, it's a great article. I'll just I'll just finish the that section there with a quote, the very last line of his article before we move on to the next kind of um tradition or the next uh, article and what it tells us and, and the last the quote the last line of the article is it is along these lines that a nationwide anti-fascist movement can be built to take up the mass organised struggle that alone can defeat O'Duffy and all other fascist imperialist groupings in Ireland. Quite relevant to today's um, It is, it is, you know, again. and, you know, and he does talk about how, how can William O'Brien, you know, he was the head of the LTG, AWU, that's now SIP2, like at the time, how he will talk tough, but actually takes on that kind of competition. Like, like there's a great line here, he, you know, he, he quotes from like Tom Johnson, who was head of the Labour Party at the time. And he talks about um, Johnson talking about the kind of blue shirts. And he says that Johnson um, has gone on to endorse this so-called vocational representation groups borrowed by O'Duffy from like Mussolini and the fascist economics of national socialism. Tom Johnson has said us that has said in the mm -hmm. in the Shannon, there is there is so much good in the economic proposals of the National Guard that the government should have encouraged a discussion of the ideas that were being broached by that organization. Um, what Connor Breen says is that he like he says that Johnson stands for the fascist social policy but regrets that such a blatantly imperialist pack of, of like blackguards as the Blue Shirts should be the group to to introduce it to Ireland and thereby discredit it. 
So, stuff. I mean, it's absolutely, it's so sharp and it's so brilliant, but he's basically saying that, like, we can see this in terms of, in terms of breaking up, like, Keir Starmer. Mm-hmm. I mean, Keir Starmer is putting forward what is a, a kind of a liberal fascist social policy. He has accepted that, like, fascism is the future, is the only way kind of forward, and is then trying to put a kind of social, a social democratic sheen on it. In Ireland, how, how that was done was through Catholic social teaching. So, so you put this mm-hmm. kind of this kind of this kind of Catholic social teaching gloss on what is kind of fascism, and it was quite good at it here. Yeah, it's uh, it's really prescient and it's really um, important to reread these old articles from not just for the brilliance of them in themselves and what they tell us about that period, but what they tell us about what's happening around us today in twenty twenty three. Yeah, yes, because I mean, you know, these these kind of social forms, these kind of institutions, they take decades to form. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing here is kind of relevant because the time scale of a state is not the is not the time scale of a human life. Mm-hmm. So how it kind of moves can only be seen through history and can, it, it, it can only be seen through that kind of lens. Yeah, we're going to move on now because we've got another um, article to look at or another, another text to look at, but also um, because of what it tells us about the tradition and the history of um, Marxist writing in Ireland. And it's one, we think, from 1943 and it's a marvellously titled Thesis of the Irish Trotskyists by Robert Armstrong. Um, and it's actually on the national question, which is also fascinating to me because... You know, Trotsky's tradition and the national question have always been strange bedfellows and they've always been strange analyses and nuances put out there. I think one of the current, I think the SP's position is some sort of weird socialist federation of the islands or something. And um, So tell us a little bit more about, because again, I've never seen this document. It is actually quite a good read, actually. I quite enjoyed it. And I've never even heard of Robert Armstrong. And I had no idea that Irish Trotskyism had a presence really in... In, so early on, I thought it was more of a 1960s kind of a thing rather than this is way back in the middle of the Second World War. It is, you know, so um, so, so kind of Bob, uh, Bob kind of Armstrong, um, he, was, um, he was a Scottish kind of socialist, he was a, he was a Scottish kind of Marxist, he, uh, you know, who he was based in like Belfast. Um, I, um, this was sent on to me. By, is it significant that it comes through the Union, that it comes from Scotland into the north of Ireland, do you think, that tradition? I don't know. I mean, you know, like it's worth kind of, it may be kind of uh, teasing out. I mean, like um, he was in a group called the Revolutionary Kind Workers League that Matt Merrigan, who became head of the ATG AWU, which is now like Unite. It, it, well, yeah, we actually have the Matt Merrigan plaque in this office somewhere. When, oh, we, right. when we rescued the archive from the Unite building in Belfast, there was a Matt Merrigan room or a Matt Merrigan library. Oh my God, yeah. And we have the plaque here somewhere, so I must dig it out. Oh, sorry, Carrie. So, on. like, you know, it was a small kind of group. Uh, this was passed on to me by, by the great um, Irish kind of historian, um, Aidan Beatty, who's, you know, who's, who's based in the States. He had, um, he, he's working on a biog or, or a study of uh, Jerry Healy. Right, uh, that would be interesting. The Matzer, the <laughs> fucking looper. Uh, you know, the Matzer Galway kind of trot. Mm-hmm. Um, he, was, he was dominant in Britain in the 1970s and the 1980s. But... Aiden kind of sent this on to me and it was absolutely brilliant. And what the word like about it is that it does show that the Trotskyist kind of history in Ireland is a lot older yeah. than we normally kind of assume. Because I mean, you know, the like guy also would have seen it in terms of the 1960s with kind of with kind of Amy McCann and yeah, the Irish exactly. kind of workers group, yeah. you know. Uh, but this is like 20 years kind of previous to that. And it's an interesting kind of analysis. Um, there's one line in it where he says that Carsonism has often been spoken of as the first like European fascist movement. Well, if if it's been often kind of you know, you know if if it has been often kind of spoken of, I've never heard it. No, uh, that's the first time I'd actually seen it being 
contextualized as a fascist movement. And when you do, you go, well, actually, there's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of the characteristics of what was yeah. happening in the 1930s and, and the 1940s in the north of Ireland. It, it does. I mean, you can't you can't say that corporatism in the free state is a form of fascism, not say that the, the, a settler colony in the north is also therefore fascist. I mean, mm. and I mean, I remember doing a podcast a couple of years ago. It's on our podcast. It's on the rise of fascism in Ireland. And we delved back into the history of actual fascist organisations in the north of Ireland in the 1930s. And there were there were very big links between the British Union and fascists, but also the, the kind of the, the ruling class in the north, you know, and those interests and particularly the aristocratic landowners of the north was, were very, mm. very fascist in their outgoings and linked into fascist grouping. So it's interesting. It's something else I'm going to go away from now that you've shown me that. I'm going to go away and delve more into it because I do find it fascinating. It is, you know, like, you know, it's a long kind of article. It's a long kind of thesis on on kind of, on the Irish state in, in and, the 1940s. And the, and the national question itself, which was always, in my head, it's always been problematic for people from a Trotskyist tradition, that, that kind of question. Yeah, and like, you know, he's saying that, um, you know, it's 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 an old, bla- it's an old kind of brainer. You have to be anti-partitionist and mm. pro and pro, and pro independence. What he does bring on board that there's a tension here, that there's a, this is kind of problematic in terms of the working class in the North because, yeah, you know, there's a unionist kind of working class and there's a, there's a nationalist one. But he comes down on that side. Now, part of what he's doing is that in 1943, the Communist Party in Ireland had recently split. Had you no, know, the South had disbanded because it had come, word had been sent out from the Comintern that as soon as Soviet Russia had joined, had was now fighting kind mm-hmm. of in Nazis, that it was your duty to join in the fight. So to end neutrality. Yeah. The Communists in the South knew that they couldn't sell that. So they just disbanded until, I think, 1960, mm-hmm. 1961 or so. But but in the North, they do go, like, full Ireland needs to join yeah. the fight and, like, and workers and so forth. Armstrong is kind of, he's kind of rebelling kind of against that because he knows that a lot of the communist kind of support in Belfast is in the unionist uh, mm-hmm. But communities in like loyalist in what's now now called kind of loyalist in loyalist kind of communities, so he could be like overplaying the nationalist side just to get up the just get yeah. a rise out of the communists, you know. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. That's fair. That's fair enough. I, mean, <laughs> you know, I can understand that happening. Not you know, but it is an interest. It's still a very interesting Marxist kind of analysis of the North and the South mm-hmm. in, in the nineteen forties, and it's a, it is a, a, a fascinating kind of document. Brilliant, yeah, and that'll be available too if anyone wants to have a look at that. So the, the last one I want to look at uh, before we go today is, um, and to make sure that, and it's fascinating again, as someone I know well and read well in, in Irish and in English, is of course the um, the great Martin O'Kine and his contribution to, to Irish Marxist writing. And there's a translation of his lecture here um, in English, and it's, it is a really great read. It delves into an aspect of Irish history and Irish society that most people don't because it's, Sometimes Irish language activism, even on the left, can be very isolating and isolated and, and separated off from the mm. traditions of the left in Ireland. So I'm really glad you've included it in the anthology because I think it's really important. Uh, and there are other people I know that you're working on who will be included in the anthology from that perspective. But it's a great lecture and it's a, it's a really, really, really interesting read. And just what, again, some of the lines in it, like, you know, these are, of course, these are translated from the Irish. I hope we all agree there is no future for the Irish language under Fianna Fáil, but it's extinction. I mean, it, I mean just... <laughs> back on the fucking nose there. Like, it's 1970. Because, you know? Yeah, exactly, because that's exactly what's happening to the Irish language, as we know. And, and of course, the other line that he always puts out and that, that, that Martin O'Kine is, is famed for is, it is the duty of Gaelic revivalists to be socialists. 
full stop that's it there's no there's no debate there like you know and i kind of mm. like that as a, i'm a bit taliban about the language myself as you know so i kind of have no truck with people who don't speak it or don't mm. aren't learn it um but much you know kind why much and a kind and what does he offer and what does he bring to that tradition of irish marxist writings hey, what i like about him is that um is that i see a link there between what he's doing in 1969 first in irish and then in the 1970 in the translation that's here is that he is he's also doing what the Marxists of, of the 1930s and 1940s are doing. He's looking at the actually existing relations of production and the classes that come out of that. And he's doing it and 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 Yoska recognizes that you can't just take a template from another state and then apply it to Ireland. You have to do your homework. And that's what he does here. So when you get in the 1970s, when kind of Trotskyism does come back into Ireland in the 1970s, maybe I'm being a bit unfair, but you do get a, a bit of a franchise kind of model mm -hmm. where it's a franchise of the of the of the London kind of organization that has been set up here. And it, and they come up with some really daft ideas like, <laughs> you know, like a militant calling for an Irish kind of citizen army to solve the uh, troubles, you know, like, you yeah, know, like yeah. and like if you read just the document, it's it's batshit crazy, you know, <laughs> Um but what he's doing is that, like you know, he, you know, he's he's putting forward it's it's the Irish language as a genuinely anti-colonial space. That's it, yeah. That's and it. that's and 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 like you know, so he sees it as genuinely anti-imperialist and anti that class that it, that benefits from British imperialism even post-partition. Yeah. In the south, and he's you know, like you know, he talks about the hoteliers that are showing up. In you know in the West and I just like buying up kind of are pricing people out of the West which we, this is 1970 I mean yeah. we know exactly what's going 50 on. 50 years here. later, it's exactly the same story. Absolutely, you know, but but he's but what I like about it is that he is putting forward an indigenous Irish Marxist kind of analysis and doing it Oscar Elga, but he again he's doing what you, what we should be doing, which is looking at well, let's not be looking at what's happening in like Argentina or France or Germany or Britain or like Manchester. That's not here. What's happening here? Yeah. And what are these social tensions that are here? And what is the method of wealth extraction that is going on here in a capitalist kind of framework? And he does that. But, I mean, he's not language, but he is doing Yeah, it. but I mean, just one quick quote and then yeah. I'll, a quick point. The Gaelic-speaking population in the Gaeltachs make, make up a class that is the most abandoned, the most oppressed of the Irish people. Their salvation and the salvation of the language are one and the same thing to me. Since then, since O'Kine's writings, there have been a couple of writings, and I've got a hand, uh, hold of them from other Irish language speakers and activists in the last few years, like in the mm. last... But there's a 30, 40, 50-year gap where there's, there's almost a complete absence of talking about, as you said, whether the Irish language itself whether the gale tucked itself is an anti-imperialist space is an anti-colonial space and what should be organizing it and it's kind of abandoned really think in terms of thinking and analysis for 30 40 years yeah you know like you know there are more than kind of superficial like parallels with the environmental movement mm. where once that kind of a uh, right wing kind of middle class get their hands on it they shape it in their own image and you see that so many times in terms of these spaces like now, the best writing on the Irish language uh, from a left perspective comes out of the six counties, obviously, in the last 30, yeah. 40 years. But as you say, it was abandoned in the free state. But, exactly. You yeah. know, like environmentalism should be mm. a no-brainer in terms of being anti-imperialist. Yeah. Because anti-colonial. But in Ireland, in the South, it's not. No. You know what I mean? Like, you know, so, so you know, so you can see how, um, again, this goes back to something that is, that is part of your work, is part of my work, is part of our work, where... 
we talk about kind of class kind of consciousness that it doesn't raise itself yeah exactly <laughs> you know it's not it's not yeast that's just like put in the oven and then it raises you're constantly trying to work that raising class consciousness and that's what O'Kine is doing here he's raising class consciousness in terms of the Irish language yeah and I'm just going to quote again because it's such a fucking good article yeah. people do read it um, he says here um, Marx, Engels and Lenin uh, would have found a clear proof of their conviction that the men of property, the capitalists, are quickest to betray the people's culture. The poor were the Gaelic speakers. Class hatred burned in me before I ever wor- read a word of Connolly or Das Kapital. I mean, just some great writing in that as well, above all else. And that's one of the beauties of some of the... Obviously, this, this is part of your work. That it's the quality of the writing that matters as well. It's oh, not absolutely. not just the analysis, yeah. but yeah. some of these who are really good writers, and exactly, it's just really yeah. engaging. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it's, you know, and these are working class... Like, yeah. Again, this is... A, this is a working class intellectual a tradition that has been not just ignored, has been written out of Irish history, mm. has been written out, even by the left, has been written out. They'll quote Lenin, Marx, Greaves, they'll quote people who are not part of that, mm-hmm. instead of actually looking at, we have such a richness here. And I'm going to leave it there. That's brilliant. Thanks for ending it on that note, Connor. Um, and we're all really looking forward, not just to your work on the collected works of James Connolly, which I know is uh, in progress, but also on this particular project, an anthology of Irish Marxist writings, which hopefully is going to be in print and not too distant future. Connor, thanks very much for being with us again today. Um, listen out for this podcast. Also, the next podcast, because Connor's coming back in the new year to talk about the Irish Marxist writings of the revolutionary period, which I know that a lot of people will take great interest in. Um, for the meantime, thanks very much. Slango Foyle. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Upper workers and Slango Foyle.